Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So in our bonus episodes, Kellen and I every week talk about the ways that collapse is playing out right in front of our eyes. And it always blows us away how many different things are happening and sort of how quickly we have slid down this slippery slope in just the last couple of years and how it feels like we're just being constantly barraged by messages and news of collapse worthy things happening. And as we continue to go down this path and as things intensify, it's more apparent to us now than ever that people cope with this information in different ways, right? Some people have no desire to take any action at all and they sort of shut down or they believe that acceptance means there is no hope in any action and so they choose not to take any. Other people might choose to do something in order to feel like they have some aspect of control. For example, preparation or resiliency, which is something that Kellen and I have talked about and will get more in depth with in, in our future podcasts that we've brought up before. But another one, one that we haven't really mentioned at all, but that we want to take some time today to discuss, is that of activism and deliberately trying to take measures to mitigate or fix the issues that we're facing. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people that start to learn about the concepts of collapse simply because they have an inquisitive mind. But it's not like other topics, right? If I just get really interested in like deep sea marine life and I start to learn about all these interesting animals, that might be really fun to learn about and, and satisfying, but it really doesn't directly impact my life. And you could find 
a lot of other topics like that. Collapse is something that's different because as you learn about it and the reality sets in, you realize this has a major impact on me, on my loved ones, on everyone in the world. And so as you learn about a topic that has an impact on you, especially a likely negative impact, it's just a natural result that you're going to say, well, so what? Like, what happens now? What do I do with this information? And you're right, there are a few different avenues that any of us take as as we learn more about this. I personally have never been a part of an activist group. Sometimes I think that's just not for me. And yet sometimes I think it's one of the most important things I could be doing. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of shopping around for the right place to invest my time and my energy. But becoming more collapse aware, I definitely want to know what other people are doing about it. What other people are doing to try to combat all the issues that we're up against. And I don't see myself ever telling somebody else that they should be a part of a particular activist group. But I do see myself at some point or in the right situation saying, you know what, I believe in what a certain group is doing. I want to be a part of that. I'm going to put my time, my money, my energy into trying to further their cause. So for today's episode, we've chosen four different organizations or movements to sort of highlight, uh, talk about what their purpose is, what sort of actions they've taken, what they've accomplished. And like Kellen said, the goal here is not to convince anyone to join these groups. We are not a part of any of these groups. There are a lot of different opinions about you know, what groups stand for and the way that they're achieving it. Our goal here is not to convince anyone one way or the other, just simply to discuss them, to give an idea of what is out there, of what people are doing. If any of them pique your interest, you can do your own research and make your own decisions about if any of them are something that you would like to be involved in. And each of these groups or movements have criticisms, right? Critics as well, which may highlight reasons not to join them. So anyway, we are going to discuss them. We're going to give basic brief overviews about them. And I think I also just want to mention quickly that obviously where we've picked four here, there are many other groups that are doing wonderful things that may even be more effective or more popular or whatever than the ones we're about to talk about. These four just give a decent sort of sample size of what's available. So to start... I think it'd be great to begin with one that everyone is familiar with, most likely. They're called Extinction Rebellion. Which, by the way, if I can jump in, obviously there are a number of activist groups that are trying to fight climate change. Personally, I think Extinction Rebellion has the coolest name. Yeah, it's certainly a cool name. And one thing I found interesting was the way that these different organizations market themselves. Because there were some kind of clear distinctions between them. You you look on their websites and there's just different vibes they give off, which are kind of fun. I'll try and highlight a couple of those from what I noticed. But along with that, Extinction Rebellion, they talk about how they are not protesters, they are rebels. And they use that term rebels to basically highlight that what we're doing here is not just trying to raise our voices in the street. Like we are trying to rebel against a system that's killing us. So I'm just going to read, there's two different sort of about summaries of Extinction Rebellion. So one says, Extinction Rebellion is a global environmental movement with the stated aim of using nonviolent civil disobedience to compel government action to avoid tipping points in the climate system, biodiversity loss, and the risk of social and ecological collapse. 
The second says Extinction Rebellion is a decentralized, international, and politically nonpartisan movement using nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience to persuade governments to act justly on the climate and ecological emergency. So from these two different sort of definitions, it's clear that number one, they are using nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience, and that their main cause is to try and convince governments to act on climate and ecological disaster. I had always thought that Extinction Rebellion had been around for longer. For some reason, I thought they were a decade or more old, but it was actually just started in 2018. The founders were Roger Hallam, Gail Bradbrook, Tamsin Omond, and Simon Bramwell. Roger Hallam is the one, is the name that sort of stands out to me. It's the one that I feel like we hear most from or see most from. I'll admit, I don't know much about him. And frankly, the, the site doesn't talk a lot about its founders. So we won't spend much time there. But here's one thing I found interesting. On the homepage of the Extinction Rebellion site, in big letters, it says, Life on Earth is in crisis. Our climate is changing faster than scientists predicted, and the stakes are high. Biodiversity loss, crop failure, social and ecological collapse, mass extinction. We are running out of time. And our governments have failed to act. Extinction Rebellion was formed to fix this. So, I mean, that's a pretty lofty aim to say that their goal is to fix all the things that we're talking about in this podcast. And in order to accomplish that, they have created three demands, which I do like that they've set their demands out simply and plainly. Number one is tell the truth. They say governments must tell the truth by declaring a climate and ecological emergency, working with other institutions to communicate the urgency for change. So one of these demands has already been met, and that is that the government of the UK did declare a climate emergency. We talked recently, Kellen, in a bonus episode about how that hasn't really changed anything, and we'll discuss that briefly later in this episode when we talk about another organization. But that's their first demand, tell the truth. Second is act now. Governments must act now to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. Well, that is another bold demand. And then lastly, go beyond politics. Governments must create and be led by the decisions of a citizen's assembly on climate and ecological justice. So they have a section where they talk about the idea of a citizen's assembly, and I thought it was pretty interesting because before I read that, I was kind of confused about what they really wanted as far as what changes to be made. And instead of making specific demands for the actual changes to be made, they're saying they want these citizens' assemblies to be created that would decide what changes should be made. And they wanted the government or governments to basically heed the outcome of those decisions by the assemblies. So what you're saying is that they just want an actual democracy. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about <laughs> right. Yeah, instead of instead of just having some like plutocratic elite who can lobby their way into positions of power deciding what happens to actually allow the people to decide. And so really basically the citizens assembly would be a representative group of people chosen from the society. They want those people to come from all sorts of walks of life, right? A 65-year-old retired woman and a 19-year-old college student and a 40-year-old, you know, they want it to be all sorts of different people who make up a general representation of the population. Hold on. Can I just ask, is this like people that are elected to be a part of the group 
Or they're just picked at random? Yeah, they would not be elected. They would be people who are chosen not necessarily at random. They may be people who volunteer for it, I think, but that are not in a position of power as far as having been selected by people by choice. I just wonder how that would work because if there's a lot of people who want to be a part of that, do they just all get to be a part of it? You're saying they're selected somehow, so that sounds like there's some criteria or form of election. So straight from the website for Extinction Rebellion, there's a whole list that kind of lists out exactly what the process would or could look like. But that part of the process that you're asking about, how are people selected? It says, citizens are chosen using a random selection process followed by a sorting process to ensure that the sample accurately represents the population as a whole. And there were other steps in there talking about like creating a media strategy to make sure that everyone is aware of what's happening. So the idea is tell the country what's happening, that people are going to be selected at random, make that selection happen, make sure that that selection is of people who accurately represent the country and the demographics, and then present those people with the highest quality information possible. Let them hear all sides of it, the scientific information that's available. Then they would deliberate. They would talk about what sort of outcome is necessary. They would come up with a solution, and then that would be presented to either the government or to the people of the country for a vote. So it talks here about how there's different options, there's different ways it can be done. The government can be bound to carry out the actions that the assembly decides. Or like I said, it could go to a vote to the public. And then from what the public says, the government creates referendums or laws based on that. So there's just different options for different you know, municipalities and governments. The main point they're trying to get across is we want the people to decide what should happen instead of, like I said, you know, elites who have monetary interest in what happens. And we want the government to have some sort of like responsibility or binding need to do what, what this group says. As you describe this, I know we don't need to get really into the weeds here. And I'm not informed enough to know if somebody has figured out all the ins and outs of this. And I also know we're not here to like critique these activist groups. We're just talking about what it is they stand for and what they're trying to accomplish. But I'll just say that part of it. I don't see from a practical standpoint how that would work. Like if you think a politician can be swayed, I would think anyone from the general public can be swayed just as much by interest groups or by financial interests. If they're presented with information from all sides, there's going to be a lot of attention and energy put into presenting them with information that will make them vote a certain way. There's just also things about how would they be expected to put time into this if they're just elected or not elected, but selected at random unless they're compensated for it. And then if politicians have to do what they say, suddenly they are in a position of power and there's going to be a lot of people trying to influence their opinion. That selection process, that process for who gets to present the accurate information to them and who gets to decide whether that's information that is actually accurate or if it's just stuff that's presented to the public and the public gets to vote on it, doesn't seem that much different than some of the processes that are out there already. I, I don't know. I'm just saying all this kind of off the top of my head. I would just hope if this ever gets the traction that they're trying to get, those specifics are being well thought through because otherwise it's not going to be any better than the system that's currently in place. 
Yeah, that's valid. And I mean, we're talking about it from a very high level and I'm talking about it from not knowing all of the details. I'm sure they've thought about a lot of these things. And some of the things that you're mentioning here, I think are really valid concerns, right? Some things you mentioned, I think like, well, I mean, it's like jury duty in the United States, right? People are selected. They, in some cases, are taking tons and tons of time away from work and family and they are compensated for it. And, you know, they're kept sort of in isolation so that they're not receiving outside information or, you know, through social media or they're not, you know, it's not legal for them to be contacted by certain groups or whatever. So I think there would be ways to make that happen, especially for something that's this important. But it does for sure seem like quite a stretch from where we are to get to a point where something like this could be feasible. Now, that being said, there is a section on the website where they talk about citizens assemblies being used already for other things around the world. So just a quick example It says in Poland from 2016, there was a citizen assembly in the city of Gdansk. I'm probably pronouncing that super wrong. A population of about 350,000. The mayor must organize an assembly of 56 citizens when a question proposed by residents attracts 5,000 signatures. This began after the city government failed to effectively deal with floods in 2016. Decisions made in these assemblies are binding. So this is a place in which this is already happening. I don't know to what success, but I think, you know, if they've got a use case or some examples of it being done, that doing it on a wider scale uh, may not be out of the question. There were other examples here in Ireland, in France. I guess those are the, the main ones that they cited. In Ireland, it says 99 citizens debated several complicated topics such as abortion rights and the challenges of an aging population. Several outcomes included a referendum on abortion rights, as well as a list of 13 recommendations on how Ireland could become a leader in tackling climate change. The Citizens' Assembly returned in January 2020 to discuss social change in Ireland and the advancement of gender equality. So it doesn't say how they necessarily handled the, you know, whether it was binding or anything like that. But anyway, it's a unique idea. And one thing that I did like about it is that this is just a huge issue that Extinction Rebellion is trying to tackle. And it would, there's just no way I was before reading about the citizens assembly, I was skeptical thinking, so what's their proposed solution? What are they trying to tell the government to do? Because there's so much to it. They're not picking like very specific things that the government has to do. They are saying we should let the people decide what should be done. So I think promoting that type of democracy, what they call deliberative democracy is important. You know, what Extinction Rebellion is saying is, hey, government, We want to compel you to actually listen to what the people want, not, hey, government, listen to what we as a group, Extinction Rebellion, think that you should do in order to fix this big issue that we're facing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. And I think we'll see with each of these activist groups that they take a different approach to how they handle things. Who's to say whether one approach is right or wrong? But I do like that they want to make these decisions more democratic And even though as I first hear about these citizens' assemblies, which is just one part of how Extinction Rebellion proposes they operate, you know, as I hear about it, I'm starting to kind of poke some holes in it and raise initial concerns. Frankly, I'm just happy that they're doing anything, right? That they're taking whatever approach they're taking to try to make some change actually happen. Yeah, great point. So let's move on a little bit to how they're trying to achieve this, right? What actions are they taking What's their vehicle for making this happen? They say, this is from the website, traditional strategies like petitioning, lobbying, voting, and protests 
have not worked due to the rooted interests of political and economic forces. Our approach is therefore one of nonviolent disruptive civil disobedience, a rebellion to bring about change since all other means have failed. What does work is mass civil disobedience. Studies show that worldwide movements for change that actively engaged 3.5% of the population have been most successful in achieving their goals. Bold actions like occupying roads, blockading bridges, and creatively disrupting the work of banks which finance the climate crisis can capture government and media attention and change the conversation in ways conventional resistance hasn't. While some may call our approach extreme, it is no more than what is necessary and far less disruptive than what is coming if we fail to act. So looking through just like a couple, I just looked at recent news reports from Extinction Rebellion you know, just searching it on the internet. And it came up with things like extinction rebellion activists living in ancient tree to save it from 250 million pound road expansion, extinction rebellion to blockade Leicestershire petrol station tomorrow, breaking extinction rebellion breaks glass at news UK as nation hits its highest temperature on record and Hereford extinction rebellion blocks Avara food site. So they're gaining media attention by doing public facing acts of civil disobedience, blocking roads, blocking entrances to manufacturing facilities, that type of thing, breaking glass at news stations. The biggest sort of thing that you might have heard about or that they've done, they gained worldwide attention in 2019 after an 11-day occupation of different sites in London. Over 1,100 people were arrested during those 11 days, and more than 1 million people were affected or inconvenienced by those occupations. You know, and I, I would love to know if these acts of civil disobedience are re giving the kind of results that they're hoping for. If they're hoping just to get publicity and to get attention, clearly it's working, right? You, you mentioned all these articles that are highlighting these actions by Extinction Rebellion. If it's to actually change public sentiment, clearly that would be a lot more difficult to measure. But I mean, if they're blocking a road and I'm on that road and I can't get to where I need to go, I would imagine that would make me very frustrated at the group. And you could think of extreme examples, like an ambulance that's trying to get through and they can't get to the hospital. And I, I guess these are, they're taking a risk here, right? Some of these actions are things that could cause members of the public to become resentful toward an activist group like this. Yeah, I've seen videos of confrontations you know, when someone's laying down in the road in a chain of people to stop traffic and people jump out of the car and there's fighting and pushing and yelling. And, you know, I've seen physical attacks, people being punched because, yeah, it really upsets people and for good reason. Right. And that that is what they're trying to do. Like you said, are they trying to raise awareness or are they trying to raise sentiment towards the group? Well, again, reading what it said on the page. They mentioned that studies show that worldwide movements for change that actively engaged 3.5% of the population have been most successful in achieving their goals. So what, what they're trying to do, I believe, is increase the awareness overall to get more people to join the group to hit that relatively small number of 3.5-ish percent of people who are willing to, to join. And they know that to do that, they have to do these sort of larger public things that gather attention, which frustrate people. They may not care if 96.5% of people hate them. If they can get 3.5% of people to agree and to agree to take action, they believe that they are much more likely to have success. On that note, 
We actually talked about Extinction Rebellion and some other groups on a bonus episode recently. And we got some interesting comments from people in the UK who are patrons who had thoughts or opinions on this. And I'm going to read a couple of them now. So one person said, in Roger's talks, Roger Hallam, he makes a distinction between raising awareness and being in active strategic rebellion against a government that is causing harm. The aim is not to be popular with everyone, but to attempt to catalyze a small but sizable percentage of the population to make policy demands of the government that they cannot ignore. A lot of Extinction Rebellion are collapse aware, which allows them to act from a place of acceptance rather than anxiety. They went on to say, I was very skeptical of Extinction Rebellion for two years, but they won me over as I listened to them and I will be participating in more of their activism later this year and maybe even sitting down in the middle of a road. Doing this will not necessarily change anything, but I desire to act in this way because my personal moral code demands that I do something rather than nothing to attempt to protect human life as much as possible. So they kind of touched on that point that like their idea is not to get everyone to like them, but to catalyze a small group that can make change happen. So then another comment we got, someone said, being from the UK, I read a lot about the direct action of these groups and do subscribe to a lot of what Extinction Rebellion and the rest are trying to do. However, I think for most people being caught up in or just reading about these actions, it is more of a turnoff from the cause. Actions like lying down in roads are way too easy for the UK's mainly right-leaning press to condemn by saying they're stopping ambulances or people getting to hospital or whatever. I'd love to think these actions would make some difference, but such as the government we've got, they are simply feeding into tougher laws against the right to protest. So this is more someone with the opinion of yours that they are bothering a lot of people and that possibly even swaying the government towards making tougher laws against protesting because those protests have high levels of inconvenience and in some cases could prevent, like you're saying, ambulances getting through and things like that. Now, this person is saying it's sort of the cop-out that, that right-leaning government will use to say why we have to stop all protests because they're stopping people from getting to the hospital, that sort of thing. Whereas Roger Hallam and the group is saying, well, if we don't get out here and protest, if we aren't able to stop the direction that we're heading, it's going to be a lot worse than some people not getting to the hospital. So for my part, I'm not saying that I agree one way or the other, but it is interesting to hear the different perspectives. And I will say I really appreciate that they make the distinction of being nonviolent. I'm sure there are members of the group who would willingly enact violence with that mindset that, you know, the ends justify the means. And they go all unibomber on them. <laughs> right. That they could justify almost anything in saying, like, what's some harm to a handful of people or even the death of 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 500 or however many they choose if that means that we're going to save billions of lives down the line. But I think if we're not careful, there can be a fine line between activism and fanaticism or extremism that can become really dangerous. So overall, I appreciate the approach that they're taking and I especially appreciate what they're trying to accomplish. This kind of leads to the next group that we're going to be talking about. Perhaps you've heard of them before, and it's also related to climate change, but they take a bit of a different approach. So it's the Sunrise Movement. And, you know, they advocate political action on climate change. Basically, everything that they are focused on is in the political arena. It's interesting because part of their identity that they're very open about is that they are a youth movement. So they claim that they are a youth movement 
there to stop climate change, and they feel like they can create millions of good jobs in the process. They talk about building an army of young people to make climate change an urgent priority across America. But everywhere I look, almost all of the messaging that I see on their website and videos that they've made has this premise that that politicians have long been in the pockets of fossil fuel companies, that there's just a lot of corruption and politicians aren't doing what's in the best interest of the people, specifically because of the money, the lobbying that comes from the fossil fuel industry. So they feel like we need to fight the fossil fuel industry by electing leaders and enacting policies that will revamp our infrastructure. And I find it interesting that there's been kind of a shift in this movement. It seems like currently they're kind of re-identifying who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. But it started back in 2017. They had a four-year plan with a four-phase strategy. And what they wanted to do was get proponents of renewable energy elected in the 2018 midterm in the United States and then in the general election. And my take from everything that I researched on this is that really it was all about getting certain Democrats in office. But interestingly enough, it seems as though they've been repeatedly let down by certain Democratic politicians. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) So it felt like they were a very partisan group initially. But when I went to their website there's a pop-up that comes up on the screen and it says, Joe, you're the president. Act like it. Don't let them burn our future. Biden, declare a climate emergency. And then there's an invitation and a form where you can sign a petition for that. As I look at their initial articles and videos, it felt like one of their big focuses was just making sure Donald Trump didn't get reelected. But like I mentioned before, they started out with this four-year plan And they were founded in 2017. So in 2021, they decided we need to kind of redesign things. They've talked about, and and I'll quote here, they say, going deep on our story, strategy, structure, and culture to determine what the movement needs to be in order to win a Green New Deal. And then there's a lot of focus on that. So although they're trying to figure out exactly what the movement needs to look like, they are very clear in what they're trying to accomplish, which is a Green New Deal. And if you're not familiar with the Green New Deal, you know, this group talks a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In many ways, although they are kind of wary to completely take Ocasio-Cortez on as their champion, they do promote her and talk about her a lot because she's pushed forward with others this Green New Deal. And the reason it's called a Green New Deal is because they're comparing it to FDR's New Deal right where it was this huge effort a lot of jobs created a lot of money put into building new infrastructure and the green new deal is all about decarbonization and jobs and justice they're talking about upgrading every building and upgrading every mode of transportation and upgrading the entire power grid and the claim is that it's going to give everyone access to a good job and clean water and clean air They recognize, similar to what you described, Corey, with Extinction Rebellion, that the key ingredient is people. And they feel like if they can have escalating protests and strikes, it's going to get the attention that they need from these politicians. 
they cite the same numbers that you talked about from Extinction Rebellion, which comes from research by a sociologist named Erica Chenoweth. Apparently, they studied all major worldwide civil resistance campaigns from 1900 to 2006 and found that no nonviolent movement has ever failed once they achieve the sustained participation of just 3.5% of the population, which at the time that they were stating this was 11 million people in the United States. And so that's their goal. If they can get 11 million people in the United States to be continually and actively involved in this cause, they're convinced that they will be able to make the difference that they need to. Just to jump in here, I think it's interesting that that number, that same three and a half percent popped up here. And it's further more interesting because you mentioned in that study that it said a movement has never failed if they were able to get three and a half percent, right? So, I mean, that makes sense then for them to set that goal and say, let's get 11 million people to be actively involved. And who knows what actively involved actually means, you know, especially in the context of the study. But for me personally, I'm a numbers guy, so it's kind of gratifying to see concrete goals based on you know a number of membership to say it's proven that this many people can succeed, so let's all get together. Every person counts. If we can hit that 11 million and we can all put forth a consistent effort, like this will succeed in making the changes that we wish. I think from my point of view, you know, the Green New Deal, number one, it's, kind of, it's already dead. And number two, was it the solution that we need? I haven't looked that deeply into it, but I know that much of what the Green New Deal is, is technohopium, right? It's this idea that renewable energies are going to save us. And we've already had plentiful conversations about the reasons that renewables are not going to save us. And secondarily, I think relying on politicians the current structures that we have in place to make the change. You know, we're counting on the structures that got us to where we are to be the ones to get us out. And it's just very unlikely to be the case. So those are a couple of issues, I guess, that I take with what you've said so far about this movement, this organization. But really, in the end, if they were able to mobilize 11 million people, that would certainly be a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. And it goes back to the idea that, hey, at least they're trying to do something, right? I think it's easy for us to be critical of the approaches taken by each of these activist groups, but I'm glad they're making an effort. Um, they have faced some pretty significant challenges. Some of it is related to what you're talking about, where, you know, they've never really attempted to deal with the Republican Party. I don't think they've ever had hope there, but I think at least early on, they had a lot of hope that the Democratic Party would be able to help them reach some of these ambitious goals. But I sense and I see from some of the interviews that I've watched a lot of frustration in even trying to get Democrats to agree on how to approach climate change. You know, like a year ago, the Democratic National Committee dropped their pledge to end fossil fuel tax breaks and subsidies. They are clearly frustrated that Biden hasn't declared a climate emergency. They talk about, you know, going forward, what will this movement look like under a second Biden term? And they, they do say a Biden victory will make the road to winning a Green New Deal far clearer. But they're also trying to think ahead of, you know, what if Trump were to get reelected? At one point, there was a lot of frustration. They pushed for Nancy Pelosi to support them and to select a committee for the Green New Deal. But instead, Pelosi resurrected an old committee on climate crisis that they felt was very ineffective. And so even within 
the side of the political party that they had put their hopes in, they're not getting quite the support that they would like. So they continue to push for the Green New Deal. They feel like that's where the solution lies. But one of the problems with trying to create a widespread group like this, they're trying to get 11 million people in the U.S. to support this cause. But when you basically take anyone who's willing to join your group, how do you keep consensus? How do you keep things from going off the rails? You know, they say they've got this principle, principle number seven of Sunrise, is we take initiative, which states that any group of three can take action in the name of Sunrise. Well, now they've got over 400 hubs spread over 50 states. And at one point, one of the chapters of Sunrise did some things and they were accused of anti-Semitism. And so the national movement denounced that chapter's actions. And so there's been some controversy and, and issues just trying to keep a cohesive group as they continue to grow. You know, one of the ways you, you talked about some of the civil disobedience that Extinction Rebellion is taking. Well, one of the things that Sunrise is known for is what they call wide awake campaigns, where they will surround a politician's home really early in the morning and then make a lot of noise. And it's this kind of clever idea that like, hey, we're waking them up. Like they need to wake up to the situation. We're literally waking them up. But again, if I'm a politician and that happens to me, is that going to make me more supportive of that group or just more resentful? So they've tried some things to make sure they get people to join the group and spread the movement. They've encouraged like a six month, like, hey, young people, take a break from your life. Do this sunrise semester. We'll teach you about grassroots organizing and community building and public speaking and come support our cause for six months. But from a practical standpoint, you can imagine that that can be challenging to do. So there's definitely a lot of challenges here, but they continue to uh, try to redefine the movement to find the best ways to move forward. You know, I won't lie. I had never heard about that group before. So it's interesting to hear what their aims are and what they're working towards and how they're achieving it trying to achieve it. So moving on to the third one, we won't spend as much time with this one, but I found it really interesting. So this is called Just Stop Oil. And they were founded just earlier this year, 2022, also in the UK. What's interesting to me is that the three that we've talked about so far are all relatively young organizations. And it seems like more and more these types of groups are popping up as climate change continues to worsen resource depletion, all these things accelerate, more groups are popping up. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens as collapse furthers exponentially. You know, will more of these groups continue to pop up and will they become more effective? Will they learn from each other's mistakes and, you know, out of rough experiences, will stronger organizations be built? But anyway, this is a smaller group, mostly due to their newness. Um, but instead of focusing on large-scale protests with thousands and thousands of people attending all at once, they focus more on individual actions that can cause disruptions. Earlier, I mentioned marketing and sort of the differences in their marketing. Well, this group, Just Stop Oil, if you go to their website, they really flaunt the members who are currently imprisoned. They take pride in getting arrested you know, it shows off their actions. They have professional video of many of the different actions that they've taken. It's more, you know, better cinematography. 
There's video montages on the site of members being punched while blocking roads and, and that type of thing. They have interviews with mainstream media where they're being belittled. And it's kind of just feels like a really in-your-face, like, we are disruptive and we're proud of it. And they've popped up a lot recently in the news. I think most popular was their actions in art galleries. They've been gluing themselves to paintings. So again, this was one that we talked about a little bit in one of our bonus episodes, but they had basically gone into these art galleries and glued their hands to the frames of the paintings, which you can imagine, you know, if that glue has time to dry, it's kind of a delicate procedure to separate the hand from the frame without damaging the hand and without damaging the frame of expensive paintings. They've been doing things like organizing at oil infrastructure sites. They've zip-tied themselves to soccer goalposts at EPL matches. I remember seeing a video recently of one guy who zip-tied his neck to the goalpost, and it was tight. It looked pretty uncomfortable, but it showed, you know, security struggling to try and get him down from there, and they had to pause the match and, and all those types of things. And also in their short time as an organization, they've had interviews with people like Noam Chomsky, Adam McKay, who wrote Don't Look Up. So one thing that I thought was interesting, they have one single demand. And this is I think this is really good on their part for the marketing, right? It's literally in their name, Just Stop Oil. The demand is that the UK government makes a statement that it will immediately halt all future licensing and consents for the exploration, development, and production of fossil fuels in the UK. So where Extinction Rebellion has this really big goal of basically preventing collapse, Just Stop Oil is just saying, can we at least please just stop producing more or even just searching for new sites from which to pull? Now, when it comes to how they view what they're doing and kind of how they respond to critics, there was one article that said this. So it said, so what do they have to say to those who believe these actions are unnecessary or extreme? One member of the group says, I think the fact that it has got so much media attention, that it has got so many people talking about it, people for whom this was off their radar before, I don't think it's in any way unnecessary. The art student adds that she isn't doing this because she wants to, it isn't for fun. Regardless of how people react, the consequences of the climate crisis are impacting people around the world right now. I don't think it's extreme at all. You know, we glued ourselves to the frames of the painting, she says. I think the fact that the government is effectively displacing half the world's population is a lot more extreme. So again, it's that idea of justifying these really inconvenient acts for a, a much greater cause. I had read earlier uh, some comments from people on Patreon. I'm going to read another one in regards to the Just Stop Oil campaign. The commenter said this, The Just Stop Oil group has said they will continue these acts and escalate until the institutional art community, which is generally going to be your wealthy influential types, starts insisting on change. This is actually a smart tactic because they've identified an influential group with a lot of visibility, yet not necessarily interrupting the poor schmoes on the street. And that was confirmed in another article I read where one protester, as part of Just Stop Oil, said, If the directors of this gallery really believe that art has the power to change the world, then I demand that they claim that power, close, and refuse to open until the government commits to no new oil. So basically they're trying to say instead of inconveniencing everybody trying to drive on a road, we're going to inconvenience the owners of these art galleries who are going to be more prominent people with with loftier voices and who probably agree with us on what we're talking about, right? Most of the arts is more of a liberal 
demographic who probably agrees that climate change is a huge issue. And so we can say, look, if we can inconvenience those people and say, you have the power to help us affect change, we're going to keep bothering you until you use it. That's kind of the the actions that they're striving to make. You know, in a number of ways, I appreciate their approach. Like, I like that they've got the moxie to take these bold actions. Well, also, they're not doing anything violent. They're not hurting people. It sounds like they've been quite strategic in their marketing. I love that they're very focused. One of the things I've seen while researching some of these different groups is that sometimes they start with a focus, but then they realize, like, well there's all this crossover with climate change issues and social issues and they start to broaden their scope and they become a group that has this mission that touches all of these different issues and suddenly they're focusing a lot more on you know racism and poverty and all of these other worthy causes which in some ways is very noble and great and yet it detracts or dilutes sometimes their focus and their direction so i'm sure that just stop oil as a movement has plenty of flaws, but at least in terms of how deliberate they've been, I really like that. Yeah. One thing that I, I think is really interesting is that it seems like their actions are often aimed at kind of what we consider the circuses from Breton circuses, right? The things that people use to either distract themselves from what's happening to humanity or the things that people engage in hyper frequently if they're ignorant to what's going on. But the, the same article says this. It says the two activists say that though Just Stop Oil has specific targets for their actions, the widespread nature of their protests is meant to break through the illusion that everything is okay. And then quotes one as saying, the aim was just to say to our culture, basically, that you can't be hiding from this. At this stage, everyone is responsible. Everyone is going to be impacted by the climate crisis. We want to show that this illusion that everything is okay is just not true and that we are in an emergency and we should act like it. And I kind of get this funny imagery of, you know, people just enjoying themselves, enthralled in the circus of like a soccer match, for example, and then being reminded when a protester zip ties his neck to a goalpost, you know, or trying to enjoy an art show or gallery and, and having these people glue their hands to it. It's like the feeling that they can't really escape it. And the ugly truth of what's actually happening keeps poking out in even the places of society where you'd least expect it. I don't know if you've seen The Truman Show. It's one of my favorite movies, but it kind of reminds me of that idea of like breaking the fourth wall or, you know, people living this life in ignorance and bliss. And there's there's moments in which Truman is just living his life and someone will come out and try and warn him of what's going on, right? And they quickly get tackled and taken away and, and removed from the picture. And then he's convinced that everything's fine. But that keeps happening in an accelerating pace throughout the movie until he realizes that what he's living in is fake. And it seems like Just Stop Oil's efforts are kind of like that person going out of their way, putting themselves in harm's way or knowing they're going to get arrested or whatever it may be in effort to educate people who are either trying to hide from it or who just don't know what the nature of our emergency is. Well, it's interesting. We've highlighted three different organizations, three different activist groups that are all very recent. Uh, you know, they were re recently founded. They're all focused on climate change. And they're all taking different approaches. And as we planned this out and as we were doing research, we thought it would be worthwhile to highlight a movement, not an organization, but just a movement that took place 
It's now been a decade ago, but it was one that you can pretty confidently say failed. And I think it's important to highlight because there are at least a few obvious reasons why they failed to make any serious movement or changes. Anyways, this is Occupy Wall Street. And I feel like most people are familiar with it and remember it. But if you don't, it's a protest movement against economic inequality and the influence that money has in politics. So this one is different in that it's not related to climate change and it's not necessarily a specific organization. But when the recession hit in 2008, it left a lot of people feeling panicked, depressed, frustrated, and by the time we hit 2011, there was, you know, growing sentiment that the wealth gap and the economic inequality and the greed and the corruption and just the the undue influence that corporations have on government, especially when it comes to the financial services sector, it was all something that we could point to as a problem and kind of at the heart of many of the issues that we were seeing at the time. So the Occupy Wall Street's slogan was, we are the 99%. And that was referring to basically the, the income and wealth inequality in the United States between the wealthiest 1% and the rest of the population. So it started with this idea for a protest. Um, the original location was going to be one chase Manhattan Plaza. And they kind of had these two backup locations, which were Bowling Green Park and Zuccotti Park. So the police then found out that this was going to happen and they fenced off those first two locations that I mentioned. But for a couple of reasons, they did not fence off Zuccotti Park. So there was a protest there and over time it became this kind of growing movement and the idea was we're occupying Wall Street. You know, we're going to stay here and we're going to continue to protest. It began getting a little bit more attention on October 13th of 2011 because the protesters were told they needed to vacate the park for cleaning purposes, but they didn't want to have to vacate. And so there was a little bit of a clash there. A month later, November 15th, New York City police told protesters that they had to leave the park and now it was under direction or or the notice was being given from the park owner. And they were saying the reason why was due to unsanitary and hazardous conditions. So the police showed up in riot gear and removed protesters from the park and arrested a couple hundred people. December 31st, people began reoccupying the park. There was another incident in which there, there was kind of a clash when police showed up in riot gear, started clearing people out. Kind of another little clash on, on March 17th, another on September 17th. And then once there was a full closure of the Zuccotti Park encampment, the movement turned its focus toward occupying banks, corporate headquarters, board meetings, foreclosed homes, college and university campuses, and, and even Wall Street itself. There are some claims that this had an impact, that you know, it, it caused people to start talking about it. It kind of reinvigorated the U.S. to start having more activist movements. You know, there's there's a cafe that was able to get higher wages. And there was an organization that wiped out like $4 million of student debt from a for-profit college. And there are a couple of things that are cited like that. But most people agree that although this 
movement got a lot of media coverage, it kind of just fizzled and died. So just to highlight some of the reasons it didn't really get a lot of traction. Part of it was that there was just a lack of clear goals. They didn't have any sort of official agenda. They were just saying, hey, we're mad about this. And there wasn't like a specific policy they were trying to push forward. They even were open about having a host of broad demands. And so it kind of became this catch-all for any issues they saw with government and corruption and the economy and the wealth gap and social injustice. And it just became kind of undefined. They also were people that in some cases were making false claims. They weren't really being accurate in what they were saying the wealth gap was or they were presenting inaccurate information. There was some anti-Semitism where some of the members of this movement were were holding up signs saying it's Jews that control Wall Street or Zionist Jews who are running the big banks and the Federal Reserve. There's claims that there was a lack of diversity. There wasn't a lot of racial or ethnic diversity in the groups that were part of this movement. They say they were pursuing the wrong audience and there was just a failure to have a continued support base. And for a lot of these same reasons, they had trouble even just conveying whatever it was their message was. And then because it was a bit of an unorganized group of people, there were some bad things taking place like Occupy Wall Street demonstrators were complaining to the police of thefts. There were several incidents of theft. There were also allegations of rape and sexual assault that were taking place with the the demonstrators themselves. So for all of those reasons and perhaps more, this was a movement that almost everybody had heard of. It got so much media coverage, and yet it didn't really amount to much. And perhaps that's why when we talk about some of these other groups, you know, as you just mentioned, Corey, Just Stop Oil, I like that they're very focused and they're very deliberate and they are organized in what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, Occupy was interesting because it brought together so many people and it showed the power of protest as far as being able to capture attention. And it showed that there was a lot of passion and people were willing to go out of their way to spend time and, and you know sacrifice the potential of being arrested or harmed by police in order to protest something. And for a long period of time, you know, the fact that it went on for six months. But it also shows the weakness of sort of impromptu protests like this, sort of a grassroots movement that sprung up without necessarily a leader or, a you know, a solid core of principles, a group of people who could guide the effort, right? It's one of the challenges that anarchist efforts face is being able to organize in a way that you're able to get consensus, come up with, you know, the founding principles and demands. And, and that was something that with such a large group like Occupy, where you're getting people from all different walks of life, they may have all had differing opinions. They may all have had different demands that even if the people they were supposedly protesting against had said, okay, like we're willing to negotiate with you. You know, who, who were they to talk to? Who were they to, to negotiate with? What demands were they expected to have met? And I think that's why it fizzled. There just was no way to even measure the success. Whereas in contrast, you know, these groups that we're talking about, like Just Stop Oil, who has a very specific demand, it's measurable. And people who join the group know what they are getting into when they join it. 
They know whether or not they agree with the core principles, with the values, with the end result. Whereas, like you said, with Occupy, it was people who were mad and who were willing to show up to express that anger. But from there, the the plot kind of fell out from under them. Yeah, I like the way that you put that. And I think that as we've discussed each of these groups, it will likely be worthwhile to revisit some of these groups in the future uh, as we're discussing collapse, but also highlight other groups and other approaches, other movements that are taking place. I think it's important to understand just from the perspective of what is happening out there and what action are people taking. And I think we can learn a lot by seeing the different approaches. It's easy to look at Occupy Wall Street, for example, and see that if there would have been some more organization and some clearer principles, clearer objectives, they likely would have had more success. But some of these newer groups that we talked about with climate change, it's fascinating to compare and contrast and see that they're all fighting for the same thing, but they're doing it in different ways. And I think we'll get some key learnings as we see what works and what doesn't. It's natural as we're having conversations about these groups to try to pick out what is working and what isn't. And that means that we are it's sometimes giving some critiques of their approach or giving praise to an aspect of how they operate. But again, we're not promoting any one of these groups. Or activism at all, necessarily. Right. We feel a responsibility to accurately convey the information. And then you as the listener, you know, it's, uh, it's up to you. It's your life. You get to choose what action you want to take or not take. With all of that in mind, I do have a lot of respect for people that live their values, whatever their values are. And when they see a problem, you know, they, they take action to try and fix it. And so, although in many ways, the situation is kind of hopeless <laughs> as it relates to collapse, the fact that there are people actively creating these movements and taking action does inspire some degree of hope for me. 